Lori. Thank you so much. Well, friends, my name is Adam, if we have not met, and it's a great day to be together in God's presence. I brought along a little, a little visual artifact to help get us started today. No, this is not Magic Johnson's shoe from 1991. This is one of my actual shoes. That's a big boot, isn't it? I wear a size 15 shoe. And so I, I, in my mind, I should be like 6'8". Like I thought, well, my life would just be a lot better if I could just kind of just kind of stretch out a little bit. Uh, so having a size 15 shoe, having Shrek-like feet, uh, <laughs> is, is, it makes going for shoe shopping complicated. So when I go look for shoes, the question is not, what do I like? The question is, what do they have, right? And the answer is usually not a lot. You know, like I got all, I got all excited when Adidas launched the Patrick Mahomes signature shoe. I was like, ooh, I wonder if I could get a little Christmas present combo with that. Went online, adidas.com. They don't even make them in size 15. They were just like, nah, just not, just not going to bother. So the shoe, going to the shoe store and really the shoe industry in general uh, is, is really the only time that I could think of. One of the few places in my life where I'm sort of outside the norm. We're going to take a turn here, and I know you can feel it coming. Because otherwise, other than going to Shoe Carnival or Adidas.com, the world treats me just fine. I'm a 38-year-old, straight, white male. The world treats me well. And a lot of the time, I'm oblivious to the way the world works for other people. Uh, It's the stories of my friends and colleagues who are women in ministry, and I am shocked by the things that are said to them and done to them. It reminds me that the reality is that to a lot of folks, being a woman in ministry is just outside of the norm. Or the stories of my friends who aren't white, and the things that have been said to them and done to them, threatening things, dangerous things. And it reminds me that not everybody experiences the world in the same way I do. So I have a working theory. I wonder if you'll find it to be true also. It's this. Being outside of what is considered normative can often be a form of suffering. Being outside of what is considered normative can often be a form of suffering. And this applies, you know, it it can, like, you guys always get the little, I call it the director's cut at 1045. It's like my wife is in uh, elementary education. When you close your eyes and think of a second grade teacher, is that person a male or a female? So so this is fluid, see what I mean? Like, to to be a male, again, don't feel bad for for me and, and the males, but to be a male in elementary education is probably outside what most people consider normative. So whatever, I'm sure each of us can think of a situation where that was us where we fell into what, uh, into outside of what's considered normative, and often, not always, that can often be a form of suffering. Many times when we're con- considered outside of what's normative, we're perceived as somehow other, other than what's expected or what the majority is. And then a lot of times, even unknowingly, we can do that to other people when we treat them as other. And in, its, it, in the form of a verb, othering, as defined by uh, the dictionary, is to view or treat 
a person or group of people as intrinsically different from and alien to oneself. That's a little fancy. I, I, I prefer this translation. They're not like me, so I don't like them. That's othering. They're not like me, so I don't like them. In this series, No Fear in Love, we'll be looking at rejecting fear and instead choosing to try and obey Jesus' command to love our neighbor. We'll look at the beauty and challenges in trying to do that. And what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that Christ became like us and calls us to love them because we were them to Christ. In the letter of 1 John, we find some Hall of Fame scriptures. It would not surprise me at all if several of us are familiar with several of these verses. Now, it gets a little confusing in the Bible with all the Johns. A lot of Johns. There's John the Baptist, but he was different than the John who wrote the Gospel of John, which talked about John the Baptist. And then later, there's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Those were written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who, of course, was not John the Baptist. See what I mean? A lot of Johns. So if you get them all mixed up, it's okay. You're in good company. So there's three letters that John wrote to communities of Christians. And we find those in the second half of our Bible called the New Testament. The author is addressing a community of Christians, the location of which is not contained in the letters. So we read this in chapter 4 of 1 John. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So I want to break this down kind of concept by concept. This is how love is made complete among us. Love is made complete not in an abstraction or in concepts, but in action. There's a difference between the thought of doing something and actually doing something. And we would be wise not to conflate them. My man John Mayer, one of my favorite artists, said that love ain't a thing, love is a verb. And when that love is made complete in us, we can, as another translation says, have boldness on the day of judgment. Because we know that God is a God of love and we have responded as such. It's on the day of judgment, or whenever the future is, that God will set all things right. We don't have anything to worry about because God is love. In his book, Fear of the Other, Methodist Bishop Will Willimon says that we shouldn't fear God, nor should we fear those we categorize as other. What he says we should be fearful of is disappointing Jesus by not following his command to love our neighbor. So we don't need to fear God. We need to fear disappointing Jesus. So how is it that love is made complete among us? And how can we have confidence on the day of judgment? In this world, we read in verse 17, we are like Jesus. So in response to Christ's love, we reflect that love out into the world. And may we never forget that Jesus was other than us. I mean, imagine being so good and showing up and having the very people you're trying to save plot to execute you. Imagine being Jesus with the only news that can affect people eternally. And folks just walked away. They had better stuff to do. They had other stuff going on. Jesus came to save the very people 
that would reject him. We read this in Philippians 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Christ did all of this while we were still his enemies. Jesus was other than us. He was in heaven. He was eternal. We are mortal. We are sinful. He is perfect. He's other. But it was Jesus who first moved towards us. So in this world, we do the same. And part of our call is to put aside the tribalism that plagues our culture and to see people first as God's children who are worth so much that Christ died for them. And so there's no need to fear any person as other because when we're motivated by Christ's love, then we are without fear because there is no fear in love. This love that we've been shown, it transcends all the categories that we try and define ourselves by or label other people with. Now I want to be very clear. These aspects of our life, they don't cease to be reality and it's not that they aren't important. They're just not the most important thing. Willimon puts it well. While we are so proudly asserting that I am me, Christians must also stress that my signifiers like class, gender, tribe, race, I'll include party, and history are being reframed and reinterpreted by the infinitely more determinative qualifier, baptized. Christ has made relative the world's way of naming us, even relativizing my biological inheritance. Woo! We baptized an, uh, an infant at the last service. And the most important thing about Amelia isn't her beautiful dark hair or all the wonderful things she'll grow up to do or that she was an American or whatever party she'll affiliate with. The most important thing in her life happened today, that she's Christ's. All that other stuff is great. It's just not the most important thing. That's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. It's just about getting things in the right order. Right? What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you as well. So it's not that these signifiers aren't important. They're just not the most important thing about us. Being a child of God is. And so as we grow in, in this love of Christ, in this un- understanding, and in, in, as we gain experience in this way of viewing not only ourselves, but the other, then we can understand that perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So there's no need to label those different from us as other or as them. Willimon again says, nothing is more countercultural than our belief engendered in us by Jesus, that our identity is secure in God, not in our nationality, race, gender, or any of the other ways the world demarcates human beings. So we can, get, we can get rid of this instinct that we have in us to other those different from us when we recognize that Christ became like us and calls us to love them because we were them to Christ. We're all the same in our need for God's grace and the dignity God gives each of his beloved children created in God's image. And so this is how we can track if we're making progress Are we being like Jesus in this world? Are we seeing people not as other, 
but as Christ sees them and sees us. This will reveal both our progress and the distance we still have to go. And all of this, everything I've tried to describe to you, all of this is in response to God's love. Because this is how our scripture ends in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, said about this verse, this is the sum of all religion. We love because he first loved us. He said it's the genuine model of Christianity. None can say more. I've still got like seven minutes left, so I'm going to try. Some of y'all were like, oh, yeah, I like that line. (laughs) We love because God first loved us. God moved towards us while God was other, while we were God's enemies. Now in response to that love first shown to us, we show it to others. Tokenbo Adeyomo, African scholar, said, not everyone around us will deserve our love, yet we must extend love to all. We were equally unlovable when God first loved us. So the tricky part is when we want to other people that we detect do that to others. Does that make sense? Are you following me? When we want to other people who other others. I should have started off the next sentence with otherwise. This, This is what I mean. Here's what I mean. Probably a year ago. I was driving down 92, and I saw a young man walking along the road wearing a Confederate flag hoodie, just like this one, very prominent. And I thought to myself, we will know the culture in Kearney has changed when that young man thinks, you know, I shouldn't wear this anymore. And I want to go in on this for a moment. I think the whole argument of it's not about hate, it's about history, the Confederate flag. It's not about hate, it's about history. I I think we just need to retire that. I got some history for you. This is the Musto Log Home built by Anthony Musto around 1820 in Bath County, Virginia. It's one of the only surviving log cabins from the period. For most of the 20th century, it was also an antique dealership. Could tell you lots more. I won't. See, there's not a lot of Mustos out there. It's kind of a weird last name. So Anthony Musto was an ancestor of mine whose parents immigrated from England. Anthony Musto would later fight in the Confederate Army in 1861 in Bath County, Virginia. So I am a descendant of Confederate soldiers. This is not something in my family history I'm particularly proud of. So I'm I'm just trying to, to demonstrate, I'm familiar with my own family's history I studied history in college. I took entire classes on the Civil War. I love history. We have a ton of history here in Clay County. And I think there's a difference, though, between remembering history for what it was, for reality, and memorializing it, and paying tribute to it. I'm part of a pastor's cohort that meets uh, regularly throughout the year. And I believe in 2024... My cohort is going to go to London. You know what I won't find in London? Anyone flying the Continental Army flag of the American Revolution. Right? You see where I'm going with this? Because it makes no sense to memorialize people who bailed on your country. No one is flying the Continental Army's flag in London. And so when I see Confederate flags around town... It breaks my heart and it makes me mad. 
Now, in case you can't tell, I want to put this very plainly. And I don't start off sentences like this very much. But as your pastor, I would suggest that any association with the Confederate flag is to associate yourself with the symbol of hate. And it's damaging to our Christian witness and the love Christ calls us to. Now, I also want you to know, I wrote all of this last Wednesday. And at the time, I didn't think it would be particularly provocative. Uh, I don't think, I, I slept as I normally sleep before Sundays last night. I don't think this is particularly brave to describe. But after the second half of the week our country has had, you may feel like I'm playing controversy bingo. What's, what's, what are we going to do at church today? And so here's why I wanted to bring all this up in the first place. I want to take you back to that scenario when I saw the young man in that Confederate flag hoodie. Because here's my own challenge in that scenario. In the course of trying to tell the church not to other, I can't do exactly that to that young man. See how that works? And it's annoying. But I can't fall into the trap. If I dismiss or demean this young man, even just within my own spirit, in my own heart, how am I any better? Now, I still hope he will retire the hoodie. But I need to recognize my own instinct to other those who think differently than me. I also need to react with curiosity in addition to rage. Like, what factors would lead a young man to purchase and then display a hoodie like that? I wonder. What type of environment was this young man raised in? I wonder. These types of questions help fill the distance ideologically between me and this young man. It helps fill the distance with grace. And it helps me remember that Jesus drew near to me even while I was Jesus' enemy. It seems like annually we have a story hit local or even national news about racism in our town. I'm tired of it. My guess is you're tired of it. And that's less than nothing compared to the weariness of the people that actually experience it. To be outside of what is considered normative can be, often be a form of suffering. The city of Kearney is 91% white. Now, I'm gonna, I want to speak very plainly. I did not give this sermon because I think we have a church full of racists. That's not what I think. I do know that I am often blissfully unaware of how people in our community are viewed and treated as other. I don't think anybody should feel bad for being born white or being born whatever color you are. You can't help it. That's how, just like I can't help being born with gigantic feet. I don't think anybody should feel bad for being, being born whatever color you were. That wasn't up to us. But what is up to us is to take responsibility for the culture in our community. I think Kearney is a wonderful place. We love living here. And I don't think it's controversial to say, I think we all want to make it that way for everyone. It's a great place to live. We just need to make it that way for everyone. And so guided by the love of Christ, 
May our fear of disobeying Christ's call to love our neighbor be greater than our fear of speaking out against racism in this community. I'm going to say it again. May the fear of disobeying Christ's call to love our neighbor be greater than our fear of speaking out against racism in this community. Friends, we already done prayed it. We can't come into church every week and pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God help us to close the gap between our community here on earth and heaven and then not respond to the reality that the evil of racism is present in our town. Can't do it. And so I would offer us two steps that we can take in order to live with no fear and love. The first is to recognize othering when it happens, both within ourselves and when we see it happening in and among others. Friends, we all have biases. And that's not a white folks problem. That's a universally human problem. So the instinct to not like someone who's not like us is real, is very real. So we need to be attentive to it. I've tried to lay out very plainly my own struggle with that when I was driving along 92. So who's a close friend that you can confide in when you recognize that instinct? When someone isn't like you to not like them, who can you confide in about that? Let's also recognize it and speak up when we see it happening. Now, many of us are like Rex from Toy Story. You remember that line? I don't like confrontations. Remember the green dinosaur saying that in Toy Story? I know that's how a lot of us are. And so the question then is, how do we actually do that? I would propose that we simply, when we see othering happening, react with curiosity. Respond with curiosity. This works well both within our own selves and externally with others. Jesus responded to people with questions all the time. I find it super annoying. Right? Like over and over and over in the Bible, someone asks Jesus something, and then he just responds with a question. So this is a biblical practice. So here's how this works. When I was so disgusted when I saw the young man in the hoodie, one good question is, why did I react with such indignation? Another question I thought about, not like in my car in the moment, but as I prepared this. Had I been in a position to say something, what would I have said? Again, what is going on in this young man's life when he thinks that hoodie is a good idea? I wonder. So this works internally as we examine our own biases and motivations and reactions. It also works externally. When, and, and so there's not, rarely is there anything wrong with asking a question. So when someone makes a racist joke... A question's a great, a great way to respond. Wait, what, why is that funny? Or if someone you're with insinuates some type of racist trope, you can say, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? Then you just let the silence do the work. You just sit there. Respond with curiosity. Let silence do the work. Friends, these are complicated, difficult conversations. We have to each fight the urge to categorize people into us and them. Let's remember that Christ became like us. 
and calls us. Christ calls us to love whoever we might consider them. And may we not forget that we were them to Christ. May God's love be made complete among us as we live in this world like Jesus. And may we love because he first loved us. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to be together, for the chance to, to hear from your word, to sing praises to you. God, it's a good reminder for us that you came. You came in the form we can understand while we were still your enemies. And that you were rejected by those you came to save. God, help us remember that the most important thing about anyone we'll ever meet is that they are of sacred worth and someone that you gave your son for. God, in this time of incredible tension and division, help us to live like you in this world. May our church be a force of love in our community. God, it's my prayer that this sanctuary would not be a fortress where we come and hunker down in safety together and shelter from the world, that it would not be a fortress but a launching pad where we are coming together to encourage one another, to be reminded of the good news, and to be strengthened to leave this place and to offer others the same love you have shown us. God, we are blessed to be a part of this community. Help us to be a blessing to all who reside in it. God, we take responsibility for our little corner of Missouri here, that we could each work, sometimes in small and even secret ways, that only you may see, but that each of us would be working towards your vision of the kingdom to be realized here in Kearney. God, thank you for your son who did not despise us as as other, but gave himself for us. May we view everyone through the same eyes as he views us. Give us the strength to persevere and keep going. Give us a spirit of optimism to not just give in and be cynical and give us the grace and the courage to have the audacity to try and live as you did on this earth. And everybody said, amen. Friends, we have the opportunity